in uh, public discourse in America, privilege is currently a very charged word. It's surrounded by a lot of uh, heated debate, a lot of confusion. The, dic the dictionary defines privilege as a special right, an advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. So a special right or an advantage that's given to a particular person or group. Well, as I think about that definition of privilege, privilege is an appropriate word to describe what God's people possess in Christ Jesus. That this morning, as we think about that word privilege, and the advantage is given to a particular group of persons. I'm saying that, that it's an appropriate way to describe what God's people possess, what the church possesses in Jesus Christ, that we have great privilege. And this morning, we're going to look at how we should steward the privilege that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll do this morning as we get into 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles open, you can open up to 1 Peter 2. We'll be focusing on verses 9 through 10. In a couple minutes, though, I'll read from verses uh, 4 through 12. Much like those of us here this morning, God had assembled the saints in first century Asia Minor, the audience that Peter was writing to, from a diversity of religious, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. He was writing to a very diverse group, really to a... a area that was massive, twice the size of California. Pro prominently, he was writing to Gentiles who were coming from pagan backgrounds, although there were no doubt uh, Jews in those churches as well. Peter was writing to churches across this vast area. We don't know how long those churches had been there. Perhaps some of those churches had been started by the same Jews who had heard Peter preach at Pentecost nearly 30 years prior. We know that at Pentecost there was Jews from that area. Maybe those same Jews had gone back after hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and planted those churches 30 years. Peter's writing to them now. The churches across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, were suffering for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Peter speaks about the fiery trials that they were going through. And the letter doesn't mention specific physical abuse, although that could have been happening, and, and even death. It seems more, as the letter reveals, that there was a climate in which God's people were shamed. They were marginalized. They were verbally abused. They were socially ostracized for their obedience to Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, Peter encourages the saints regarding the certainty of their salvation and the guaranteed outcome of their faith in Christ. And if you are going through any kind of persecution now for your allegiance to Christ, read through 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. It is encouraging of the certain hope that we know is coming to us. In chapter 113 to 2-3, Peter tells these, these suffering and, and, and marginalized saints he gives them broad commands about how they are to live between the already and the not yet. In this time when they are still waiting for the salvation that is coming to them at the return of Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 2, how Paul encouraged the shamed saints with the honor that they have because of their union with Christ. That those who don't believe 
in Christ will ultimately experience shame. Our shame now, though, is only passing because of the honor we have with our union with Jesus Christ. And we will see that in review here in just a minute. In 1 Peter 1, in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, which we'll be exploring this morning, Peter continues to expand upon the honor the believers have been given by God and what they were to do with that privilege. So I'm going to read now from 1 Peter 1 uh, and 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. And coming to him, so coming to Jesus, as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have chosen uh, to speak into uh, the darkness which was humanity. Without you speaking, Lord, all we had was our imaginations and our lies. And scripture reveals that we suppress the truth about you that you made clear through creation. Father, without the special revelation from you preserved in your word, we wouldn't know how to be reconciled to you. We wouldn't know of the good news of Jesus Christ, and we wouldn't know of this incredible privilege that those who are in Christ have. Lord, I pray that you would be encouraging uh, the saints' hearts this week through this message, through looking at the privileges we have in Christ Jesus, that we'd be fulfilling our purpose that you've given us because of these privileges, and that we would just be overwhelmed with, with thankfulness uh, at your grace. Please, Father, help what happens here this morning uh, through your word lead to us proclaiming your excellencies this day and in the upcoming week. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to see three responses we are to have to the privilege that God has given us in Christ Jesus. We're going to see three responses we are to have to the privilege that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And the first response is that we should rejoice in our privilege. So rejoice in your privilege. We're going to see this in the beginning of verse 9. Rejoice in your privilege. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In English, the verse begins with a conjunction but. 
Peter's making a contrast to what immediately preceded it. He's making a contrast with those who disbelieve, as Peter says, and it's translated here, as those who disbelieve in Jesus Christ. So unlike those who disbelieve, who underestimate and reject Christ, those who are offended by him, by his proclamation that he is the only way to the Father, those who stumble over him, unlike those who refuse Christ, because they are disobedient, says this is why they reject him. They stumble because they are disobedient to this word. And unlike those who do this because they were appointed to do so. Unlike those who disbelieve, there is honor for those who believe in Jesus Christ. They will experience eternal shame. But those who believe in Jesus Christ will experience eternal honor. That's what uh, the contrast Peter's making with that word but there. And then he describes the privileges belonging to the saints of Asia Minor with four phrases. Now, Peter draws the, the, the inspiration for these four phrases from promises that God makes to Israel in the Old Testament. Like other godly Jews, Peter longed for the day when Israel would fulfill its place in God's plan. And like other Jews, Peter had been surprised to see that God had extended the privileges promised to Israel beyond believing Jews, although it included believing Jews, beyond believing Jews, to include Gentiles who had put their faith in Christ. And you can imagine the Jews' uh, surprise after really 1,400 years of promises to the people of Israel Largely, the Jews rejected Christ, and Gentiles in mass are getting saved. And so, as Peter wants to encourage these saints in Asia Minor with the privileges that they have been given, he draws from these, these promises that Israel was to receive and to experience, and he looks and he clearly sees that the Gentiles are participating in these promises now. In this church age, all who have put their faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, participate in these privileges. We fulfill the role and participate in blessings promised to Israel, but extended through Christ to the nations. The first privilege is, but you are a chosen race. The word race here is people who share common, common ancestors, a common lineage, offspring from the same source. The Greek word is, trans, is translated in, in, in a broad group of ways, from, from, from family to countrymen to race, depending on context. It's just people who share common parents. Now, Peter likely has in mind Isaiah 43 as he writes. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah prophesies how the Lord is going to bring Israel out of exile into Babylon. God punished Israel by sending them into, into Babylon. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah pictures a return from that exile, like a second exile. Exodus, and you'll see some, some of that language here, Isaiah 43, verses 19 to 21. I'll read Isaiah 43, 19 to 21. Behold, 
I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. So picturing, again, that that Exodus says Israel left Egypt to come into the promised land. So Israel would return from Babylon back to Israel. Rivers in the desert, the beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches. That's kind of a strange thing for us to think about. Because I've given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed my, for myself will declare my praises. And we'll see as we go through this section that Peter's influenced by Isaiah 43. And that's where this phrase, my chosen people, comes from. Israel was a chosen people because of God's covenantal promises that he had given to Abraham, to the physical ancestor. What brought these diverse group of saints in Asia Minor to become a chosen people is the same thing that brings us into that same chosen race. We are part of that same chosen race, not because of our ethnicity, not because of our, our ancestry, not because of our DNA, but because of God's election, because of God's choosing. Peter begins this letter talking about those who are chosen, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. He writes to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's choosing of who will be saved and who becomes part of this chosen race is clearly taught in Scripture. One example of a verse that does it is Acts 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And this is why someone responds to the gospel, because they have been appointed to eternal life. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 explores this theme. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind attention of his will. We are a common race because God has chosen us to believe in his son. If you have come to Jesus Christ through faith, if he is your only hope, if you have stopped placing any confidence in what you can do, in any goodness, and put all of your hope in Jesus Christ, we are together one race in Jesus Christ. Christ is our common ancestor. He is the new Adam the origin of a new humanity of worshipers who are loving and obeying God for eternity. He is, as he talked about in 1 Peter 2, that living stone, that other, that now us as living stones to him are joined. Our life comes from him. We are unified with him. We are one race with these saints that Peter was writing to in Asia Minor who lived 2,000 years ago. And that is only because God has chosen us. And how humbling. You can't look at yourself and say, I know why he chose me. 
Unless it's, I know that he chose me to make himself look good. Because there is nothing desirable in me. There is nothing good in me that he would choose me. What humility we must have as we all deserve punishment and we all deserve wrath. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is only because of God's grace. So brothers and sisters, rejoice in this privilege. I mean, what a humbling privilege that we should be brought in to this race of worshipers who will enjoy God and glorify Him forever. The fact that as we have differences in skin hues and ethnicities and background just emphasizes the miracle of what God is doing, the beauty of it. Rejoice that God has brought you into his eternal people, even though you only deserved punishment for the crimes against him. This is a privilege That's the first privilege, that we are a chosen race. And then Peter expands. He says next, the second privilege, a royal priesthood. We see in Exodus 19. And and again, for many Jews, Peter's use of this language here would have been shocking. But it's, it's, it's what he sees going on. As he sees God's salvation for Israel extend to the nations. As he sees Gentile converts doing the same thing that he is doing. He describes them as a royal priesthood. We see that in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6 is where he gets this phrase. In Exodus 19, the Lord explains uh, through Moses his purpose to Israel if they would obey him and keep his covenant. He says, Israel, I've got an amazing plan for you if you'll obey me. And this is what I'm going to do with you. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. He describes, now then, the Lord says to Israel through Moses, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons uh, of Israel. The promise was, he says, God says, the whole earth is mine, but I've got a special role for you, Israel. And it's to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If Israel kept God's covenant, if they obeyed God, they would function as a kingdom of priests, consecrated as a whole people. Not, and, and there was the tribe of Levi, Levi that functioned within Israel as priests. But he's saying that the whole nation would function as a priest to the other nations, consecrated to God, pointing the nations to God, proclaiming God's uniqueness and God's glory. But Israel broke that covenant with God again and again even to the point of killing God's own son. The church made up now of Jews and Gentiles is fulfilling that function as a royal priesthood. And that's where this language comes from, a royal priesthood. Now, the focus of that word royal is not that we are royalty. Like, so we should pat ourselves on the back because we're a royal priesthood. No, it's more like a royal playhouse, a royal theater, or a royal palace. We belong to royalty. We belong to the king. We are the king's own priesthood. Now, that doesn't mean as God's priesthood, as the king's priesthood, that we are bringing sacrifices before God on the king's behalf. It's not like we're the priesthood bringing sacrifices on Jesus' behalf to God. The 
king is our intermediate. The king is our high priest. He doesn't need a priest. Instead, we are fulfilling as this royal priesthood the king's purposes in this world by bringing men to himself. As a royal priesthood, we are set apart from sin and set apart to God's purposes. We're set apart for the purpose of proclaiming him and the purpose of praising him and the purpose of pointing people to him. We should rejoice in this privilege of being called God's own priesthood, the king's priesthood. What an a honor it would be to be one of the guards in front of Buckingham Palace, to be chosen from so many, or to be part of the secret service guarding the president. Our king, though, needs no protection, but he does deserve worship. And that's what we do as a royal priesthood. We're the people who are set aside, jealous for the king's honor. And we want to see more worshipers for him. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And this third privilege, he says, is a holy nation. A holy nation. The Greek word behind this word translated nation is the word we get uh, uh, our, our English word ethnicity from. It's a, a, a body of people, the, the, the lexicon says, that's been united by, by kinship, by culture, by common tra traditions. Because we are believing in Jesus Christ, because we have been united to him, we are this holy nation, a nation within a nation. And that is part of the reason why the church is hated. Because they are different, and they have their own culture, and their own standards of what are right and wrong because of what the Bible says. And they have their own king. And it doesn't mean that they're not great citizens. But that they are different from the surrounding nation. And that is true in America, and it is true in China, and it's true in anywhere you go in the world. And that description, why we're different, is a holy nation. Again, this language comes right from Exodus 19.6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be a holy nation with its own identity, devoted to God, set apart from sin. Now, there is a sense in which we as saints are already a holy nation. We're already holy. You're described, I already read it. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that God's Holy Spirit has made us holy, separating us for him, making us appropriate to his worship. And there's another sense in which we are to be that holy nation, which we are commanded to be holy. We saw that in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But Peter's focus here isn't right now telling them on what they should be. You guys need to embrace being holy. But it's, but it's the privilege. It's the honor. The honor of being called to be a holy nation. That the saints, diverse saints, across thousands of years, across thousands of miles, have been united in Christ Jesus. 
In Christ, we have been made holy, appropriate to God's presence, welcome in his presence. And we have the privilege of living in a way that reflects the holiness of God. We have the privilege of being a holy nation. So rejoice in this privilege, in this privilege of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The fact that we have escaped the perversion of the world around us, and even more, the perversion of us. The fact that we loved what God hated, and that we craved what he despised. That we have been made holy, that we've been given new appetites that we love his presence and long for his courts, that the one thing we seek, that even as we know we're still not perfectly holy in our experience, that even as we know, I long for other things, Lord, besides your presence. Our hearts cry out, Lord, all I want is you. We have been delivered from the slavery we had to all kinds of idols. And we've been made appropriate to God's own presence. We have the privilege of being this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Peter continues, a people for God's own possession. There is a different Greek uh, word used in the Greek version of Exodus 19.5 than Peter uses here, but we can see it's very common in theme. I already read this, Exodus 19.5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I said earlier that Peter was influenced by Isaiah 43. Listen to the same language again. The people whom I formed for myself, and it's the same root of the, of, 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 of the word for, for possession in our verse. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Peter, uh, as God sent him to the uh, Gentile Cornelius, saw firsthand God doing something amazing, extending his definition of his people to including the nations. And so now he uses this language that Israel cherished for itself for 1,400 years, and now is extending it and saying, you all are part of God's own possession. You're his people. We know that the whole earth belongs to God. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In a sense, he is the father of all people. In a sense that Everyone has his origin in God. Everyone belongs to God. But only do his people belong to him in that special way where we love and obey him. We belong to him not just by ownership, but because of love. We belong to him to love him and to cling to him and to fear him and to trust him and to obey him and to delight in him and to take joy in him. We are his people, adopted as his children. And this is not because he had an emptiness. God didn't have a hole in his heart. He didn't have an ache that he needed to fill. He did this because it pleased him to do so. It was according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And we're going to see more of that purpose in a minute. It says, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
He was compelled by his own greatness to make us his people. And so we need to rejoice in this privilege of God's being God's possession. And once again, we have to emphasize not that there was anything desirable in you. And if you have been saved today, you know that. You, you, you understand that there's nothing good in you and yourself. Listen to the, to, the, to, to, to the strong words that the Apostle Paul uses in Titus 3.3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That is who we were before Jesus Christ. That is, that there's nothing good in that that says, you know, I want to bring them into my family. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God would have been just to leave the whole world in slavery to sin, enslaved to various lusts, lusts and pleasures. But God chose to make a people for himself, for his own possession. And so we rejoice in this privilege. And by God's grace, I trust if you are in him, you are rejoicing now that you get to be part of this. And yet, I don't want us to lose sight that Peter's focus here isn't on us as individual saints. That's thrilling. But he doesn't say God has made a person for his own possession, but a people. And he doesn't say a citizen, but a nation. He doesn't say a priest, but a priesthood. And he is focusing on the fact that he is creating a people for himself. And you have been brought into that if you are in Christ Jesus, if he is your only hope, if you've put all your trust in him and his death on your behalf. What privilege God has given to us. And this privilege was for a purpose. And this privilege, the purpose is, we're going to see next, and that's the second response we need to have. So the first is that we need to rejoice in this privilege. The second is we need to embrace God's purpose. God has a purpose in making us his children, making us part of his people and bringing us this privilege. So we need to embrace God's purpose. And we see that in the middle of verse 9. I'll read again, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I mean, Peter's loving this, right? And, and at one time, Peter, as a Jew, may not have loved this. I mean, this was a humbling process he went through to apply these kind of, of words, not just to Israel, but to all nations. But then here's the purpose in the middle of verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim the excellencies of God. This is why God has given us this privilege of being part of this holy nation. So that you may proclaim his excellencies. The purpose of our privilege is proclamation. Peter is probably still thinking of Isaiah 43, verse 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. To proclaim, to make known, to speak about. 
And the word had a range of meanings from imparting something concealed, telling a secret, to publish a conspiracy, but also to extol mighty works, to make official announcements. And that is why God has given us this privilege if you're in Christ Jesus, to make his excellencies known. Now, this word proclaim is, is, is used by this, the same Greek word as in the Greek translation of the Psalms of the Septuagint of telling God's character and his mighty works. Like Psalm 71, verse 15. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. That word tell there. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all day long. God has given us something to speak about all this day. Psalm 73, verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. There's that word proclaim again. Psalm 79, verse 13. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever to all generations. We will tell of your praise. That what, what, what a fantastic plug for pebble, pebbles and rock ministry. That is why what we do there. We tell of God's praise to the next generation. That's what's going on right there. That's what we do in our homes. We tell of the excellencies of God. The excellencies, it, it, is, it, it is God's characteristics that are worthy of praise. And commentators go back and forth. Is he talking about God's attributes or his actions? And ultimately, I have to say, yeah. It's what's excellent and praiseworthy about God. And it's what God has done that is excellent and praiseworthy. It's his perfections, both unseen and put on display. It's his ways and his works. It's his character and his conduct. It's his heart and his hand. Those are his excellencies. It's him creating this world out of nothing in six days. It is his forgiveness that he gave, purchased with his own blood. It is his redemption accomplished. It's his promises kept. It's his mercies new. It's his love inexhaustible. These are the excellencies of God that we are to proclaim. God made us his holy nation, his royal priesthood, gave us this incredible privilege to proclaim his excellencies. So are you, as part of that people, of that chosen race, proclaiming his excellencies? And by God's grace, I, I know that in ways we are. We are fulfilling that. I believe that we are in our homes. It's not perfect, but our kids are growing up knowing about what God has done. They know the miracles of the Old Testament. They know our testimony of how God has changed us. They know the attributes of God, and we want to keep growing in that. We're doing that here at church this morning, here right now, in songs earlier, when we're spending time in one another's lives, not just talking about the Super Bowl, but about what the excellencies of God in your life, what has he done in your life? It's what's going on across the hall right now. By God's grace, we are seeking to proclaim his excellencies in our schools and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And I know that many of us feel that we need to grow in that. And we do. So let me ask 
Are you as an individual proclaiming his excellencies? Who are you telling his mighty works to? You know, it was, it, it was sweet. My uh, daughter, Margot, just quoted one of you. And I can't even re re remember what she said, which is sad, I'm sorry. And, I don't, and she couldn't remember who it was. But one of you shared your testimony in our home, and she referenced it. And she's eight. So get one another in your homes to hear each other's testimonies. Your kids need to hear those testimonies. If you haven't been baptized, obey Jesus Christ. If you haven't been baptized, if you are a believer, obey Jesus Christ so that others can hear you proclaim the excellencies of God. What a sweet opportunity. We are so quick to defend all kinds of things. Like our favorite NBA player. You get a group of men standing around. One person trounces another person's favor. All of a sudden, they're rising to defend them. You know, occasionally, we have family out of town. Now, not my uh, father, mother-in-law, who appreciate In-N-Out, but occasionally a family in town who will say, ah, oh, In-N-Out's not really that good. And so what do I do? I defend In-N-Out, right? I proclaim the excellencies of In-N-Out. Some of you may even get into a, a little fighting match about how you like your In-N-Out. Do you want the chopped up chilies on there, the grilled onions or fresh onions? We proclaim the excellencies of a burger. I've heard you do this. The excellencies of your favorite coffee place. It's what we as humans do. We are evaluators. We understand worth. We understand, in a sense, holiness. We know when something is uniquely valuable, and we proclaim that thing's excellency. It's, it's what we are. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, how often our lips are, are, are too sealed. We do become afraid of the shame. Peter knew that his audience was making a choice. Were they going to be ostracized and maligned and pushed out of business deals, not able to bring their food to the local market, unbelieving family rejecting them? He knew what they were going through, and they were making a choice. Would it be honor with Christ or honor with the world? So who knows that you think the Lord Yahweh is excellent? Who has heard you tell of his redemption? If we're going to submit to God's purpose in this, if we're going to fulfill our part in this, we have to believe that God's purpose in our proclamation is for our good. We have to buy in. We can't be like Jonah running from this. Now, Jonah had his own reasons. He specifically didn't want his persecutors, or at least the future persecutors of Assyria, to repent. He purposely didn't want them to, to, to repent. But like Jonah, many of us run. I've done it too. I had a choice in a grocery store this past week. I was tired. Do I want to bring up Jesus Christ here or not? I, I had an opportunity. By God's grace, I did, or at least started talking talk about church and mission trips and stuff. 
proclaim the excellencies. I didn't get to the full proclaiming his excellencies there. Are you, are you proclaiming his excellencies or are you running? Would you rather be swallowed by a whale? Giant fish, as the Bible says. Uh, so what should you do, though? And I know that we get there. When you've become, sadly, I hate to say this, we've become spiritually numb. And we've become bored with the privileges that God has given us. And what we couldn't have stopped talking about when we first got saved. It's just, it's just kind of a fact now. It's just part of who we are. We're Christians. So what should we do? Well, it leads us to our third response. The first is that we need to rejoice in our privilege. The second is that we need to embrace God's purpose in our proclamation. And the third is you need to fuel your proclamation. Fuel your proclamation. Throw some wood on that fire. And that's what Peter does. I mean, he can't stop doing this here. He did it in the beginning of chapter 1, and he does some more of it here. It begins at the end of verse 9. He says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's some fuel, and here's some more. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Here's some more. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And these are three statements to fuel your proclamation of the excellencies of God. The first is at the end of of verse 9, that who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is the call that when you heard the gospel, you responded. This is not just the the, the call that goes out when someone's sharing the gospel. This is the call that does that work in your heart when someone shares the gospel and you repent. That you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every person was born blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, describes that blindness, in whose case the God of this world, refers to Satan there, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Without God's intervention, when we look at that good news, we are blinded to the glory of Christ. We just walk on by. It has no appeal to us. And in fact, instead, and we saw this last week, it's offensive to us. Christ is the only way. No, there's lots of ways to get to God, is what we would say if it weren't for Jesus Christ removing our blindness. We were enchained in the darkness of living without God. We were living without loving him, seeking only to please ourselves. We were living without obeying him, enslaved to sin. In fact, our disbelief, we talked about this last week, is from our disobedience. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 describes how we once were that we walked as Gentiles in the futility of their mind, in the emptiness of our mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. The ignorance was because of hardness, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And that is the darkness that we were a part of. That darkness was our DNA. That darkness was in our veins. We had no appetite for God and only distaste. The light came into the world and men loved darkness instead of the light. And it says why in John 3, 19? For their deeds were evil. But God in his excellency did not leave us in darkness. 
says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, I read 2 Corinthians 4, 4, here's 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, the God who put light in the universe said, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's just a beautiful phrase. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And God opened our hearts and took away our blindness so that we heard, when we heard Christ proclaimed, we see God's glory there and we wanted it. Even though we were devastated, and even though we were humbled, and even though we knew his judgment was right, and even though we knew we were deserving of hell, we were like, I want that Christ. That is God taking away our darkness and bringing us to light. In Acts 26, verse 18, talks about how Paul was sent to open their eyes through gospel preaching so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is what we have received. Turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. This is the excellencies of him who has called us. So when we are slow to proclaim his excellencies, fuel that praise by remembering what he has called you out of, it wasn't that long ago. It was pitch black. It was miserable. It was despairing. But you've been called into the light of his son. So fuel that praise with that good news. When Jesus was on earth, he made physically blind be able to see. And he is still doing that today. Not the physically blind now, but those who are spiritually blind. And if you are blind in your sins, if God does not entice you with his holiness, if his commands are not appealing to you, if all you want is to save yourself and to love yourself, repent. That is darkness and the destiny is damnation. Repent and be saved. Go to the light. Find the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is good news because he still heals those who are blind. He takes those who are darkness and brings them to light. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that is true if you are here this morning. In the darkness of sin, you can be saved this morning. I'm proclaiming His excellencies now. I feel the fuel and I hope you're feeling the fuel too. Peter goes on in the beginning of verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. These, these second and third statements, uh, all of verse 10, are references to the book, of, the book of Hosea. In Hosea, God's prophet Hosea was commanded to marry a sexually impure woman, marry her and have children with her, knowing that she wasn't going to be faithful. God told Hosea to give some harsh-sounding names to his children. Names like no mercy and not my people. I, there's some strange naming going on in America. People will kind of have fun naming their kids. Um, I guess there's Old Testament precedent. This is not fun, though. That child had to go around called no mercy. Kind of hoped that the parents had a nickname and not my people. God had Hosea do this. As, as such a public sign that Israel, because of their continual disobedience, 
had taken themselves outside of God's blessing. And God was now going to treat them like they weren't his people. And he was going to treat them like he had no mercy for them. And that sounds very bleak, and it was. And, 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 and specifically there, it was fulfilled by God sending a Assyria to the northern kingdom and the exile that followed of the northern kingdom of Israel. But that wasn't all that the book of Hosea says, because that'd be a very sad book. Although God would turn Israel over to their sin and its consequences, he would still be faithful to the promises to Abraham. God is faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, to the people of Israel. In Hosea 2.23 God says, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. The one who is called no compassion is going to receive compassion. And then he says, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you, you, are, you are my God. Not my people it had that name, but it was a picture that God would one day say, you are my people. That, God's, that God would return in mercy to Israel. Now, in his plan, did, God did go through the punishment with Israel. And God did begin fulfilling this promise to Israel to make them his people and to have mercy on them. But that promise is extended in a way that was, that was taught in the Old Testament but became much clearer in the New Testament age, in the church age. That promise has been extended to the nations so that Peter now can say, you were not a people, but you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, as many of you know, both of my daughters are adopted. I am no closer biologically connected to my children than any children on my street. My daughters were not my people, but now they are my people. But I'd say in ways that's, I mean, it's not really amazing. It's amazing that God gave us our children. But that's not amazing. Our hearts ached for children. Those children were not my enemy. Those children had not spent their existence shaking their fists at me. But that's exactly what God did when he made not his people his people. He made his rebels against his kingdom his children. God made a people for himself because he wanted to make his excellencies known. Brothers and sisters, he could have left any one of us out. He would have been just to do so. He didn't have to make his people. That third statement is at the end of verse 10. You have not received, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the 8th century B.C., to the people that Hosea was writing to, God stopped his mercy. They didn't receive any more mercy. They went through a horrible punishment as the Assyrian Empire came in and brought them into captivity. He allowed them to be treated the way that their sins deserved. But God's mercy would return to his people. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. See, there was nothing in Israel that would ever deserve God's mercy. And there's nothing in us either. All we deserved was judgment. Our lives were spent before Christ, shaking our fist at God, resenting his reign, unsubmissive to his rule, hostile, and whether we kept that hostility secret or whether we raged against him. 
We would trust in everything and hope in anything to bring us happiness besides God himself. We were idolaters. And as Gentiles, we had no claim to any mercy from God. If, if we, before Jesus Christ, were to come before God our judge, we'd have no case to plead why he shouldn't punish us. We couldn't say, I've tried to be a good person. I'm not as bad as the next person. I went to church. There's nothing you could say to convince the just and all-knowing judge that he should even shave one second off of your eternity in hell. You could spend there as long as you wanted pleading, but there was nothing you could say. God's justice is no mercy. You can say that to yourself. God's justice is no mercy. But God's plan was to make us his people. His plan was to make us the objects of his mercy, to bring us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's plan was to have no mercy on his son. That's what happened on the cross. He had no mercy and only justice, only wrath on the cross. That was Christ taking our no mercy. Christ on that cross became not my people. He became no mercy in our place so that we could receive God's mercy, so that we could become his people. The sky grew dark so that we could know the light of knowing him. So is your praise, is your proclamation of God's excellency fueled by contemplating his mercy? Are you ready to fulfill your purpose, the purpose for which he saved you by proclaiming his excellencies? The American conversation is currently full of questions about what we are to do with privilege. But we know what we are to do with the privilege that God has given us as his children. We know what we are who believe in his son to do with the privilege of being a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And it isn't just to enjoy a recliner. It's not just to wrap ourselves in warmness. That's a great thing to be thrilled with. And we do need that fuel. We need to turn on the fire by meditating on being brought from darkness to light and from not a people to his people and from no mercy to be the recipients of mercy. We do need that fuel, but that's to fuel our proclamation of his excellencies. So don't waste that privilege, brothers and sisters. Tell of his excellencies. Let's pray. Father, um, we are humbled by this incredible uh, plan. And I confess... Lord, that I did not deserve any of your grace and that if I were to stand before your righteous throne apart from Jesus Christ, I'd have not one argument to shave one second off of eternity in hell. 
And yet, Father, you chose to bring us from darkness to light. You are a God of mercy. You've communicated that mercy through your gospel. You've exalted that mercy most of all when Christ took the place of sinners. Father, we are humbled by that. We didn't deserve any of this, Lord. What a treasure. And we know that as we have this, this privilege now in this life, it does lead to our being out of place, that to our being stuck waiting for what is eternal, for our being strangers and exiles here, for our being uncomfortable, for our being maligned and ostracized, especially as we proclaim your, your excellencies. Or maybe we can avoid it for a time if we keep our mouths closed, Lord. But if we proclaim you as you are in all of your justice and holiness and loveliness and splendor and purity and mercy and love and compassion, Lord, we know that maligning comes. Oh, Father, help us uh, to embrace this purpose and meditate upon this privilege to rejoice in it. Lord, that we could be part of this chosen race and this royal priesthood and this holy nation. That we could be your possession when there is nothing desirable in us. Oh, Lord, may that work in our hearts that we proclaim you. And we do ask for fruit, Lord. We ask, God, that you would encourage by bringing a new brother and sister who responds to our proclamation of your excellencies by saying that they have to have this Jesus Christ. Lord, you are still saving. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would make your glory known by including more of your elect into this body here. In Jesus' name, amen.